Good morning, everyone. How are you all? Morning. Great to see you all. Pastor Tom told me to let you know he can't wait to be back next week and continue our series on Ephesians and on Exodus. And uh, he loves you all, and uh, he's enjoying himself over in the Philippines, but he can't wait to come home. Now, it is, all, as always, an awesome privilege for me to be preaching the Word of God to you. Uh, and I use the word awesome in, in the traditional sense. I, I know it's used in other ways today. Preaching's not something that I take lightly, uh, for I know that for preaching to achieve anything of value, it must be empowered and guided and authorised by the Holy Spirit. Also, I believe preaching must always be personally challenging in the sense that we must always be inspired to apply what we've learned to our own lives. So my hope is today that my message will achieve a couple of things. Firstly, to cause you to settle in your hearts that your faith in Christ will undoubtedly be put to the test. And also then I want to show you from God's word where to find help and how to respond when that happens. The faith of all true believers is tested all the time. Some of these tests are very palpable and others are more understated. Some of them are private about what we, you know, what we think and what we watch. And others are public, witnessed by others who see us either rising to the occasion or blending in with the crowd. A wrong response to testing may bear no immediate consequences, but the consequences never just disappear. Whether only slight or totally devastating, consequences will sooner or later stake their claim in our lives. The title of my message this morning is Grace to Help in Time of Need. And would you please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, about two-thirds of the way into the New Testament. And we'll be reading from chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. Today we're going to be looking at human frailty and weakness in the time of testing and temptation and the provisions available to us from the throne of God to overcome. The Word of God reads, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all things tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father in heaven, we are needy in so many ways because of our human frailties and weaknesses. We delight in the law of God in our inner being, but there is another law working in our bodies waging war in our minds and making us captive to the sin that still dwells within us. And we find ourselves crying out like the apostle, what a miserable person I am. Who will save me from this body that brings me death? But we also can say, thank you, Father, for your grace and redemption and deliverance through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, before we study our text in some detail, it will be helpful for us to understand the circumstances that existed when the book of Hebrews was written and when, why, and to whom the book was written. Often, expositions of the epistle to the Hebrews focus on describing the superiority of Christ in his work and in his person, and rightly so. The word better is used some 12 times in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Jesus offers a better sacrifice. He offers a better covenant. He offers a better priesthood, a better revelation. But there is also a profoundly practical aspect to the book of Hebrews. Throughout the epistle, the writer is persistently and forcefully 
trying to dissuade the Hebrew readers about abandoning Christianity and, and returning to the old Judaic system, uh, from abandoning the, the substance for the shadow. He exhorts his readers not to neglect so great a salvation, chapter 2, verse 3, to be faithful and to hold to the beginning of our confidence, steadfast to the end, 3.14, to progress towards spiritual maturity, 6.1, and to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 12.1-2. But why was it necessary for the writer to focus so strongly on these themes at that particular time with this group of Hebrew believers? The answer to this question provides us with the key to understanding why the letter was written in the first place. And the reason can be summed up in just one word, persecution. Persecution was coming to all believers and it would quickly become worse than most of them ever could have imagined. Under the reign of Nero, the, the sixth Roman emperor, Christians would suffer all manner of terrifying punishments born out of Nero's unhinged imagination and hatred. Nero would come to order that Christians be sewn up in skins of wild beasts and then worried by dogs until they expired. Others would be dressed in shirts made with stiff wax, fixed to cart axles, and then set alight on, in Nero's gardens in order to illuminate his garden parties. Now, nothing like this had happened just as yet, but the proverbial writing was definitely on the wall. These were very tense and anxious times. However, for Hebrew Christians, there was a way to escape the looming suffering a way that was not open to Gentile believers, a way that would supposedly keep them safe and protected from the authorities and at the same time be pleasing to God. I wonder if that sounds at all familiar to you. Well, the writer warns them in no uncertain terms that if they fall for this lie, the piercing sword of God's word will expose their folly and it will not end well for them. Now, I say that the writer to the Hebrews because we, we don't know who actually wrote the epistle. There's no, specific in, sorry, there's no specific information about who the epistle is from or, or where it is being sent to. Now, over the centuries, there have been various speculations and suggestions as to who may have written it. Barnabas, Silas, Apollos, even Priscilla has been put forward with the suggestion that her name's not attached in order to hide the fact that she was a woman. And you may have come across some older versions of the authorised King James Bible where it says the epistle uh, Paul the Apostle, let me start that again, the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. But the, the, the theologians mostly agree that, you know, this is just not Paul's style or his language. But regardless of who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews, he has not only given us some great Christ-exalting theology, but also some very practical and valuable advice about staying true to God's word and finding grace in time of need, particularly in times of intense persecution. Also, there's no address on the letter. We, we can't be entirely sure where the letter was actually sent to. But one commentator has remarked, some say it was sent to Alexandria, others to Antioch or Jerusalem or Ephesus. Ephesus. We, we can't be certain, but there is one big clue at the end of the letter. The writer says, everyone from Italy sends their regards. Now, so I think it's reasonable to assume uh, that the letter was sent to Italy, which suggests that it was meant for the church at Rome. When was it sent? Now, here's some helpful historical background from British Bible teacher David Pawson. He says, clearly, the first leaders of the church in Rome have died because near the end of the letter the writer says remind uh, remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you verse uh, chapter 13 verse 7 the temple sacrifices were still in operation because the writer talks about them in the present tense so the letter must have been written before AD 70 when temple sacrifices ceased and the city was the temple was destroyed so Hebrews was written after Paul wrote 
to the Romans in AD 50 and before AD 70. Why was the letter written? Pawson continues, the reason for writing the letter becomes clear when we consider what happened during this period. The situation had changed considerably since the time Paul's, of Paul's letter to the Romans, largely because of Nero's accession to the throne. Nero's reign was a great time of suffering for the church. Nero, like Hitler, did some good things in the beginning. If you read the life of Hitler, you'll find that he saved Germany from unemployment and inflation. He built great roads. He offered the production of the Volkswagen Beetle, the Volkswagen, the people's car. And in the same way, when you read the history of Nero, you will find he did a lot of good things for Rome in the beginning. He listened to other people's advice and was able to rule wisely. But then came a point where Nero stopped listening and became a dictator. Just as Hitler wanted to rebuild Berlin, so Nero wanted to rebuild Rome. He had big ideas you know, about pulling everything down and building the grandest buildings that have ever been built. And in short, he became a megalomaniac. And the people who began to suffer more than anyone else were the Christians. And many of them were killed by Nero. In the letter to the Romans, there's no trace of persecution, but the church had to fight immorality in Rome. But there isn't any direct persecution as yet. But in the letter to the Hebrews, there is one section which tells us the kind of persecution they were already suffering. None of them had yet been martyred, which means we are in the middle of Nero's reign. But their homes were being vandalised. Their possessions were being confiscated. Some of them had been in prison. Hence, the reference towards the end of the letter to visiting those who are in prison. Timothy is mentioned as one of those who had been imprisoned and released in chapter 13, verse 24. So it's becoming pretty tough to become a Christian, to be a Christian. And it wasn't costing them their lives at this point, but it was pretty much costing them everything else. Now, of course, this was happening to all believers, whether they were Gentiles or Jews. So why was this letter written mainly to the Jewish believers? The answer is very simple and explains the whole letter. The Jewish believers could get out of trouble by going back to the synagogue. At this time, Christianity was illegal, but Judaism was still legal, and the, and the, the synagogues were officially registered. You know, like, much like the underground church in the communist era in Russia and in China and some parts of the Muslim world today. And so Jewish believers could return to the synagogue and take their families out of the persecution. They could even claim to be going back to the same God at the cost of doing it. Indeed, the only way to get back into the Jewish synagogue was to publicly deny their faith in Jesus. It was a massive dilemma. They had heard about Jesus, they believed he was the Messiah, but having joined the church and now found their children being persecuted at school, their windows being smashed, their properties being confiscated, they knew if they took their families back to the synagogue, they would be safe. But they would have to say in front of the synagogue, I deny that Jesus is the Messiah. So the letter is written primarily to Jewish believers against a background of persecution. The writer may have been a sailor. He uses sailing metaphors to urge them to stand firm. Don't pull up your anchors. Don't drift away. Don't lower your sails. So our text could be understood, should be understood in this context. The writer is at pains to remind the Hebrew Christians that if the anti-Christian authorities demand that they drop their allegiance to Jesus, they can't just pretend to be Christians. This will never work out in the end. And of course, this is a reminder to us also, written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I think it's overly optimistic to believe that we will always be able to peacefully coexist with government authorities in our own country and give our full allegiance to Jesus Christ at the same time. It's becoming increasingly clear that if current trends continue, there will come a time, maybe not that far away, where you and I will be fully tested as to who we really are and what we really believe. 
and it will be the Word of God that will determine whether you are a true disciple of Christ or just a fair-weathered friend who went along for the ride until it started to cost you something. Our text declares, verse 12a, the Word of God is living and powerful. The Word of God is not a set of fables, myths, legends, or a pious forgery. It does not claim ever to be the words of just mere men. It is not a, cal- it is not a collection of best, uh, you know, best thoughts of a bygone culture or, or long-held traditions of religious institutions. The Bible declares itself to be the divine, God-breathed message from the mind of the one true God, the very Word of God itself. It is living and it is powerful. It is alive. It is speaking to every generation of past, present and future. In the previous chapter to what we read in chapter 3 of Hebrews, the author writes, Therefore the Holy Spirit says, present tense, and then quotes from Psalm 95 verse 7 written thousands of years ago. And thousands of years later, the Holy Spirit is still speaking the same words through the Word of God to our own present generation. The Word of God never dies. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, Lord, your word is settled in heaven. The term settled means established, to be positioned, to carry the idea of absolute stability. Isaiah 40 verse 8 tells us that God's word is eternal, absolutely and perpetually immutable. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. The ESV translates 4.12a, the word of God is living and active. God's word is full of divine power. It is always at work. It is always accomplishing that which God pleases. For so shall be my word that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I have sent it. Isaiah 55.11. Verse 12 then goes on to say that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Every word, every part of the, every book of the Bible is razor sharp. There is no flat, rounded off or blunt parts in the word of God. The Bible is likened to a super sharp two-edged sword that cuts both ways. It both softens and hardens the heart of the hearer. It both saves and it damns. When it's wielded, it doesn't just pierce the surface of the skin, but cuts through the innermost part of a person's being, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. The word of God is so sharp, it cuts through the cleverest excuses and spiritual facades that any man can produce. It was, for me, sickening to watch the pastor of a large Victorian church being interviewed last year on a widely watched morning TV program. After going around in circles and spiritual facades about his church's stand on homosexuality and abortion, the interviewer pointedly asked this pastor whether his church taught that homosexuality was a sin, to which he replied that his church was, quote, all about Jesus and all about love and all about life and all about love. It was, it was just absolutely cringeworthy. But he had a golden opportunity to use the Bible as a two-edged sword on national television. He could have said, we teach what the Bible says, that neither homosexuals nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. And that sodomites are listed in the same holy, unholy and profane group as murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, kidnappers, liars and perjurers. 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. And then he could have pointedly asked the interviewer, are you asking me to declare that God's own word is wrong? That's what we should have seen. As it was, he in effect declared he was ashamed of the Bible without even being asked to do so. He rolled over like a little puppy to get a scratch from the man interviewing him and approval for others who also are ashamed of what the Bible teaches. But I tell you what, unless he was an absolute barefaced liar and pretender, I reckon the word of God did some surgery on him that night. I think in the quietness of his own bed, verses like 20, Proverbs 29, 25 might have been going through his mind. The fear of man brings a snare 
but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. The word of God is so sharp that it can cut through to the core of a man's being and address the deep and hidden issues of a person's life, issues no human eyes can see and issues no human book can expose. It is uniquely a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The NASB translated as un unable, sorry, as able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word here for judges in the Greek, kritikos. It appears only once in the New Testament. It, it means to be critical or discriminative in a unique way. When fallible human beings, including Christians, judge other people, they invariably judge them by their actions, but they only ever judge themselves by their intentions. It's pretty safe to do that. That's why we must be very careful when we judge others. We can never really know what the intentions are behind what they've said or done. But the Bible can judge a person based on their intentions because it goes so deep into a person's soul that he can critically discern everything that is hiding there. So the thoughts in, and intents of the heart is a figurative way of referring to that part of us which is so hidden that no other human can fully discern it. But verse 13, uh, verse 13 goes on to say, nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. When our heart is exposed by the two-edged sword of the word of God, everything about us becomes exposed. We become totally naked. There is no garment available that can conceal what is normally out of sight. Because God is all-knowing, he can always see to the innermost private part of every person. And the other thing the word also does, it gives us uh, uh, the ability to see ourselves from God's vantage point. Our attitudes, our motives, our intentions are totally exposed when the word of God is wielded. There is no place to hide. The writer of Hebrews is in effect saying to the Hebrew Christians who are considering refer reverting back to Judaism, if you go back to Judaism, hiding in the pretense that it doesn't really matter because you still believe in the same God, just not in Jesus, then consider that only Jesus can guarantee a better covenant with God. Under the old system, there were many priests because death prevented them from remaining in office. And because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. And therefore, only Jesus is able to once and forever save those who come to God through him. Only Jesus lives forever to intercede on God, to God on your behalf. Only Jesus is the holy and blameless high priest, unstained by sin, who's been given the highest place of honour in heaven. And Jesus, unlike those other high priests, does not need to stand time and again before the altar, day after day, offering the same animal sacrifices again and again, sacrifices which can never actually take away sin. Because only Jesus has offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for the people's sins. And Yahweh has therefore made him the high priest forever. Who will intercede for you before Yahweh if you deny Jesus? In chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews pointedly declares on the authority of God's word, for it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who experienced the good things of heaven, and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have trusted in the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, who then turn away from God. And just in case at this point there were those who were saying, yeah, but you know, we're not actually turning away from God. He continues, it is impossible to bring such people to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up for public shame. Hebrews 6, 4-6. Please don't imagine for a moment, the writer asserts, that if you reject the Son of God without turning, that you can reject the Son of God without turning away from Yahweh himself. The very next verse compares receiving Christ with good ground that soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, which is God's blessing. But those who reject Christ, a field that bears thorns and thistles, becoming useless and destined to be condemned to be burned and here we must point out 
that the people receive or reject the Christ, T-H-E, the Christ. 61 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Christ. Perhaps the most famous reference being the exchange between Jesus and Peter in Matthew 16, 15 to 17. But Jesus said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered and said, sorry, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In the English language, the, the word the is referred to as a specific, uh, referred to specific or, or particular nouns. It's used to denote the definite article as, as opposed to an or a, which uh, is used to modify non-specific or non-particular articles, nouns. So, for example, if I say, Let, let's read the book, I don't mean just any book, I just mean a spe specific, particular book. So, John 1, in, in John 1.29, calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 4.14.6, Jesus declares himself to be, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In John 10.9, he declares, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And in Romans 10.9, it says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, modern evangelicalism has diminished and almost trivialized John 10.9, the verse I just read. You know, I read once in an online discussion where a young believer was asked why he thought that he was saved. And he replies, it was because he privately said yes to Jesus. And therefore, on the basis of Romans 10.9, God was obliged to save him. Now, it was pretty obvious reading his other comments, he had little uh, appreciation about the significance of God raising Christ from the dead and believing unto righteousness and so on. But he gave me the impression that he took Romans 10.9 as a kind of saving mantra. And a lot of Christians, unfortunately, do that. You know, and, and insurance against going to hell, you know, if one just simply repeats the words. But at the time these verses were written, Rome Caesar claimed worship as Lord, in Greek, kurios. And the way Romans demanded that its citizens uh, show allegiance was to formally confess Je uh, Christ, sorry, not Jesus, Caesar is Lord. And if one confessed the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of the Lord Caesar, it was often at the cost of their life. So when it says in these verses that those confess the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, it is not referring to being saved from persecution by the Roman authorities, but to be saved unto eternal life, even if it cost them their life right there and then. So the writer of Hebrews is in essence asking them the same questions that Jesus asked his disciples. Matthew 16, 24 to 26. Maybe you could just turn to that with me, please. Matthew 16, 24 to 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? To the Hebrew Christians, the writer is saying, you may get to protect yourselves, your families, your belongings, but what use is that if you turn your back on Christ and lose your own soul? Now you might think, look, it's very unfortunate what happened back in that particular time, but you know, that was unique. There's never been a time of anguish like it, either before or after that time. Well, history does not support that sort of optimism. In my many visits to my native Croatia, I've visited the beautiful city of Split on the Adriatic coast many times. And one of the outstanding features of that city's waterfront is it contains the remains of Diocletian's palace. 
Now, Diocletian was a Roman emperor responsible for what historians call the Great Persecution between AD 303 and 312. It was Roman's longest and bloodiest persecution of, his, of uh, Christians. During his nine-year reign of terror, Christians were hunted, stripped of their rights, brutalized and killed. Some were ordered to participate in sacrificial rites to Roman gods and those who refused could expect torture or death. On February 24, 303, Diocletian's first edict against Christians was, was published, and there were another three to follow after that. Now, this edict pro pro prohibited Christians from assembling to worship and ordered the destruction of their scriptures, liturgical books, and places of worship. Christians were also deprived of their rights to petition courts, making them subjects, uh, potential subjects for judicial torture. Christians could not respond to actions brought against them in court, could not respond to them. Local judges often enforced uh, executions as capital punishment was uh, among their discretionary powers. Burning alive became a common method of executing Christians in the East. Christian senators, veterans, soldiers were deprived of their ranks. Again, does this sound at all familiar? 2 Timothy 3, 12 to 13 tells us, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So how should we prepare if the looming threats of persecutions of Christians eventuate in our lifetime? And I mean, you know, Severe persecutions like we've never known before. And, and look, this is not to diminish the trauma that some Christians, families and, and individuals suffered during COVID, for instance. Some losing their jobs and businesses because they refused to compromise their Bible-informed beliefs. Or, or the psychological warfare against churches like ours who refused to roll over and play dead during the COVID restrictions. However... I believe that true followers of Christ are in the crosshairs of the authorities and sooner or later they will become much more heavy-handed. We are looking at a scenario, for instance, where digital biometric identification of individuals will be used to deny government and private services to organisations and people who refuse to uh, affirm wicked ideologies and, and participate in evil practices. Many people are worried about how they'll survive in future if authorities decide to severely punish those who refuse to submit to its godless agendas and demands. Now, if I'm completely wrong about this, and we don't see that sort of persecution I'm anticipating, then I will be glad that I was wrong, particularly for my own children and grandchildren. But I think under the current circumstances, we should pay particular attention to verses like Proverbs 22.3. It says, A prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton goes on blindly and suffers the consequences. So how should we prepare and what precautions should we take? First and foremost, let's, let's look again at the second part of this morning's text now that we have explored the context in which it was written. So we're reading from verses uh, 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. If you're a Christian, remember that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Creator and Lord of heaven and earth, the great high priest, intercedes for you in heaven. So hold on to your confession. Don't let it go. Trust Him in every circumstance. Trust Him for absolutely everything. Trust Him unreservedly. He is all-knowing. He knew everything that would be true of you before he chose you, before the foundation of the world. He knew there would be circumstances in your life and times of persecution and, and, and that you would be weak, afraid and tempted to deny him. Weak and afraid 
not me, five-point Calvinist. Well, I've got news for you. Have you heard about Peter? Matthew 26, 35. Peter said to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so did all the disciples. By verse 74, same chapter, Peter began to curse and swear, saying, I don't know the man, denying him for the third time. Remember Elijah? Elijah's one of my heroes. I love him. Uh, Rosie and I visited Mount Carmel in Israel some years ago. And there was this statue of him there, Elijah, wielding this great big sword, I mean massive sword. And there, you might remember the account of Elijah and the false prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. You know, God was judging Israel because of their idolatry. And the prophet confronts the evil king Ahab and challenges him to a spiritual showdown. Ahab was to gather all of Israel to Mount Carmel along with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the false goddess Asherah. Now on Mount Carmel, Elijah says to the people of Israel, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But, you know, the people just remain non-committal at this point. And Elijah then challenged the prophets of Baal to prepare a, wool, a bull as an offering for their God and that he would do the same. With this catch, they could not light a fire on the altar and the God who answered from fire from heaven would be considered the true God. So the pagan prophets of Baal went first. They cry out, they, they, they dance around and cutting themselves. They were morning to evening, no answer from Baal. And Elijah begins to mock them. He says, well, you know, shout louder. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's, you know, maybe he's deep in thought. He's busy, he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. One of the translations apparently sort of intimates he may be in the loo, you know. He's really, you know. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, Elijah's really mocking these guys. So the prophets of Baal did what he said, but still there was no response. No one paid any attention. No answer from their so-called God. And Elijah then called the people to him as he repaired the altar of the Lord. He placed the wood on the altar. He cut the pieces of the bull on it. And he doused the sacrifice and the wood with water. And then God did what Baal could never do. The fire of the Lord fell from heaven and consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust and also licked up the water in the trench. And the people of Israel bowed down and declared Yahweh as God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there with his great big sword. Kills hundreds of prophets and hacks them to death. This is one hairy-chested macho prophet. He ain't afraid of no man. But what happened to him then? King Ahab went home, told his evil wife Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. And Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the God strike me, even kill me by this time tomorrow. I have not killed you, just as you killed them. And within moments, Elijah goes from macho prophet to fugitive. He... he wets his proverbial pants, flees from his life from a wicked woman. Now, probably a lot of blokes can sort of identify with this. You know, no problem with 450 men and one woman causes him all this trouble. He, but he ends up in the, in the wilderness, sits down under a broom tree and prays that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who already passed. After an amazing spiritual victory, he completely loses the plot and he never really recovers. Not long afterwards, the Lord graciously takes him up to heaven in a chariot of fire and he passes his prophet's mantle to Elisha. How could this happen? James 5.17 gives us a clue. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In our human nature, we are still but flesh and blood. So let's not imagine that any of us are such spiritual giants that we can overcome threats of persecution in our own strength without fear or trepidation. Unless God himself is chastising us, there will always be times when uh, you know, there's a powerful demonic force behind the persecution of Christians, and we must rely upon the Lord for his grace in times like this. 
It is there for the asking. We can come boldly through Christ, our high priest, and expect that he will help us. Jesus, having come as God in the flesh, can sympathize with all our weaknesses and temptations and worries. You know, after the events of the last two years or so, some Christians have become quite worried, have considered things like moving from the city to a larger country property where they can become more self-sufficient, where they can, amongst other things, raise some animals, grow some food for themselves. You know, things get really bad. And, and I can understand that. I, I've given quite a bit of thought as to whether that would be a wise thing to do. But ultimately, I know that wherever we live, the only wise option is to fully trust in the Lord. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. He can provide for our every need, in every circumstance, including our food. And, and, you know, and we don't need to figure out beforehand how he's going to do it. He's already provided for us, if that is his will. We spoke about Elijah, you know, how he experienced such discouragement and exhaustion and, and finally fell asleep at the broom tree in the desert after praying that he might die. In 1 Kings 19, it records, Then as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And then he looked, and there was by his head, by his head a cake baked on the coals and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and he went and strengthened that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. From that one meal, God supernaturally provided for Elijah. He had enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights. That's what I call superfood. Um, and this wasn't the first time that the Lord had provided for Elijah in a crisis. We read in 1 Kings 17 how the Lord instructed Elijah to hide after Elijah had declared to King Ahab there would be no dew or rain for, three, for the next few years because God was judging their uh, idolatry. And then it says in 1 Kings 17, 2-6, Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide in the Kerith brook near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him, camp beside Kip. Kereth Brook, east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and each evening. And he drank from the brook. God didn't provide, you know, just, just enough food so for Elijah to survive. But the ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening. And I reckon that's a, that's a good deal more than what most people in Israel would have had at that time. So, Trust the Lord undeservedly in every circumstance and in absolutely everything. Now, another thing we must do in the face of persecution, let's read from Romans 10, sorry, Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, <clears throat> not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more when you see the day approaching. We must never forsake the assembling of ourselves together. During COVID lockdowns, many people, many Christians decided that watching church services from the comfort of their own home was a good idea and some have adopted it as a, as a continuing option. This is a, this is a devilish trap. It ignores the clear exhortation of scripture. I like Bill McDonald's commentary on verse 25. He says, this may be considered as a general exhortation to all believers to be faithful in their church attendance. Without question, we find strength, comfort, nourishment and joy in collective worship and service. It may also be looked upon as a special encouragement for Christians going through times of persecution. There is always the temptation to isolate oneself in order to avoid arrest, approach and suffering and thus be a secret disciple. But basically, the verse is a warning against apostasy. So we're doing this when this, when this letter was written. Um, so they were doing this when this letter was written. 
they, they would, they, there was need to exhort one another, especially in the view of Christ's near return. When he comes, the persecuted, ostracized, despised believers will be seen to be on the winning side. Until then, there is need for steadfastness. Such good advice. In times of difficulty and persecution, there is even greater need to consider one another to stir up love and good works as a part of the body of Christ and members of one another in the local church. Romans 12 from verse 4. For as many as are members of one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of each other. Having then gifts according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in order, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. It is impossible to do these things consistently as a remote member of the body of Christ. We must meet together in order to be faithful in fulfilling our role as part of the body. We are to do things enthusiastically as unto the Lord. In Matthew 22, 21, Jesus instructs us also, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So we learned in chapter 24 that uh, we are to submit to the Lord uh, and to civil submit in the Lord to the civil authorities and render unto them everything lawful that they require. But civil authorities cannot dictate uh, to the church when, where and how it can assemble to worship the Lord. We, we learned about that from Keith a little bit today. This is outside their God-given jurisdiction. If Caesar's instructions clash with God's word, then we are to render unto God obedience to his instruction on these matters rather than obedience to and finally as we draw to a close and, and I thank you for your patience and attention I'm always having to go with Tom for preaching over an hour but I've done it myself probably <laughs> having determined to trust God to help in time of need and having determined not to forsake the assembling of us, us together as a local body of Christ I just want to say one last thing don't be anxious or worry about things that have not happened yet. This is a big one. You know, until I'd learned better through painful experience, I used to anticipate bad things that could happen and spend much time and energy worrying about them ahead of time. Now, this is a sure way to rob yourself of spiritual and emotional strength. You worry about situations that may not even happen without the grace to meet them. You know, the scripture says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace. When? When I start worrying about things that could go wrong? When I take on board the, the mainstream media's propaganda and fear-mongering? When I start fearing that bad things that have happened to other people are going to happen to me? No, there is no grace to help available in any of these situations. The grace to help is available in time of need. Philippians 4, 6-7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience the peace of God which exceeds anything we can understand. And His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So saints, be encouraged. There are many wicked and evil things swirling around us. Some of them will just turn out to be threats. Nothing more. They will fix themselves. But if real needs arise, then we, and we remain faithful to Christ and we do not neglect such a great salvation and we hold on to the beginning of our confidence to the end and we run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, then we have a high priest in heaven. 
even Jesus himself, through whom we have the invitation, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace in time of need. And let us remember, most importantly, that in the end, God overcomes even the vilest forms of evil with good, always. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, the, the writer of Hebrews exhorts true followers of Christ to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. To consider him who has endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest we become weary and discouraged in our souls. Though we may suffer shame, hostility, and persecution from sinners, we look to you for grace to help in time of need. Grace to endure when we become discouraged and weary. Grace to proclaim the gospel, the name of Jesus, the Christ in the midst of his enemies. Grace to stand firm if others demand that we deny him. Grace to continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And for those listening to the Lord who are yet afar off without Christ, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world, we pray, moved by your Spirit, bring them near by the blood of Christ. Bring them to repentance from their sins and give them faith to believe in the person and work of Christ. Cause them to arise out of spiritual death that has seized every son and daughter of Adam and into new life to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.